Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Annoyed. Oh no! What's wrong? It's it, it's my it is my annual August annoyance. Triple A. Really? What's happened? Uh, it's all the tweets we get saying, did you guys stop the podcast? Is the podcast over? I, I have this point every year. I also think I edit it out every year. I think I'm going to leave it in this year because, because it, it keeps happening. And so my, my, I know it's, it's probably a little jerkish of me, but my response always is, <laughs> go back, listen to the last minute of the last podcast where we said, as we do every year, we're going to take a break, break over the summer. I try to refrain from the snarky. I guess you don't actually really listen to the podcast, do you? Yeah, no, it's probably for the best. I mean, if they, if they I know didn't, it's they a good thing. Awesome. It's a, right. I, it's a good thing. It's a compliment. People miss us. Thank you. We missed you as well. I know it's a good thing. Allow me, allow me my annoyance, and then I can feel guilty about it because I'm a guilt-ridden, you know, guilt-ridden Midwesterner. Well, so I have a confession to make too. Do you know what I did over the summer? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, before you can answer hopefully, that, <laughs> hopefully more, hopefully more than you did last summer. That that's perhaps true. I bought a pair of AirPods and then I downloaded her and then I started watching it. But I every time I started watching it, something stopped me. So I I got close, but I still haven't quite watched it yet. How are the AirPods? The AirPods are actually pretty good. Um, I, I'm happy with them. I wish they were a little louder, but you are totally right about how convenient they are. You can just, I stick them on my keychain, and if I'm going to meet someone, but I don't want to have, I don't have a backpack and I don't want to have big headphones around my neck or something, they're phenomenal. It's, you're right. It's so easy to just pull them out and start using them. So thank you for all the push. It's the most consistently misunderstood thing about technology and how stuff sort of breakthroughs. Like there's all, whenever something new and big comes along, people are like, oh, you could do that for ages. Like, you, oh, you could, you've had Bluetooth headphones for ages or, mm-hmm. or what's so different, et cetera, et cetera. And you see this with phones, you see this with applications, all sorts of things. There is a, there is a, a, a Rubicon that you cross where the, the convenience level reaches a point where you start to change your behavior. Mm-hmm. And that, that is far more, or just as important as meaningful as the technology involved. Because yes. just to have the technology isn't enough. You have to actually trigger that change in behavior. And, and that, usually that's convenience tied. That's tied to convenience. It's like the, the, the change, the, the delta change we talked about. Like, why, why are, like payment systems in different countries, right? A favorite yep. example of mine. Like the delta of improvement has to be greater than the pain of, than the pain of changing. Mm. That is, that's, absolutely applicable to technology generally the gain that comes from the new technology has to surpass the pain of learning the new technology or in the case of airpods spending 150 bucks on something that seems like something you don't need Mm. i i I, it's interesting self-observing i go into speeds and feeds mode as soon as it turns into audio technology and on that basis it doesn't seem that great but from the perspective the the uh the steve jobs what did he say like it's part engineering and it's like part the art the humanities from the humanities perspective they just crush it and i'm really happy i got them well thank you uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm definitely glad to be back if it's going to entail you telling me that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get used to it. <laughs> Our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent, as, as they always do. With MailChimp, you can see how you're doing. There's always room to be better. MailChimp reports show you how well you're connecting with your audience and how much money you're bringing in. They will give you customized tips for improvement, and you can check in from anywhere with their mobile dashboard. Our thanks to Mailchimp for especially an exponent. Yeah, as always, thank you guys. Great. I feel, I feel like I, was, I, I, yeah, I feel like I was a little out of practice on the ad read there. That's all right. It's it's been summer. We uh, yeah, and if we're a little rusty, I'm sure folks will hopefully cut us a bit of slack.
It's the authenticity that sells. That's right. You got it. So uh, it's been a rel- it's been a, a newsy August to say the week to mm. say the least. Politically speaking, things are going down. Technologically speaking, things are going down. Sort of culturally speaking, things are going down. And there's so much to talk to and, and and cover. But I think you know, as we usually do, we'll start with sort of the weekly article that I wrote this week, which was about a, a, a subject that we've discussed occasionally on Exponent. And that's Uber. <laughs> Uh, this company yeah have we talked about them before we have so there's there's a certain category of people that just get sick of anything about that are already sick of uber like any discussion of uber whether it be on podcast or or an article or or whatever it's like uh, you know i i i'm sick or you know i don't want to read about it i'm proud i didn't read about this etc etc and i get that it's like it's been kind of overwhelming this year in particular, but I think it's worth remembering. Like there's a reason why it's so overwhelming. It's not just because it's so salacious and there's so many things going on. There's so many aspects to this that are truly unprecedented. I mean, not just the, the terrible things that were revealed last year, both internal from a cultural perspective, from a executive behavior perspective, from the Waymo lawsuit perspective, from what is, you know, the, the India, you know, the, the, the terrible goings on there and, and this, these scandals that are going on, but it's not just the scandal thing. It's the very size and nature of mm-hmm. the company. The fact that it is a 68.5 billion startup, at least on, on paper, the fact that there's been seven or $8 billion invested in this company. I mean, there has been more money put into this company than, the vast majority of companies IPO for on, on, on a top line on a top line level. I mean, from a market cap perspective, and again, an IPO is only like ten percent of the float, or is only ten percent of the stock. Like, it, it just the scale is unmatchable to like anything we've seen before, and that's why it's a really big deal because this matters not just for the cultural issues. It matters not just for the regulatory issues. It matters not just for the potential fundamental transformation of how human are transported mm. and that it, that's a trillion-dollar market. It, it matters not for all those things. It also matters for the very fabric and nature of how Silicon Valley works. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the, the financial metrics are, of course, very helpful in terms of getting a quantum of how big this is. But it's that latter point around this is, to my mind, this is one of the biggest impacts that technology is having on humanity. You think about the, the relationship between getting the, the digitization of the physical world and how much how much time and effort human human beings spend in moving themselves around and the way in which this is fundamentally it has already and will continue to fundamentally change so much of our society so much of our cities how we live the second largest um asset that most of us will ever purchase like it's all being completely reshaped and it's it's just so interesting for that reason alone Right, but but that's my point though. That that like we've talked about that reason. But I mean when it comes to Silicon Valley itself, what I mean by that is not the transportation infrastructure of Silicon Valley. I mean that Silicon Valley people is this finely tuned sort of ecosystem and all these countries and and, and cities around the world are like we want to build a Silicon Valley here and how can we mimic Silicon Valley? And and everyone always fails. And they fail because there's this aspect of complex organisms and, and you know there's this there's i i'm gonna i'm not gonna say who 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 said this because i'm gonna get, get it wrong but there's this idea where complex systems can only evolve they can't they can't be designed mm. because w- when you design a complex system it requires this level of of understanding 
uh, this totality of knowledge about all this, not just first order effects, but second order effects or third order effects, mm. but also like 25th order effects. You know, this idea where, you know, the whole, like the butterfly effect, if butterfly flaps its wings in South America and there's a tornado in Kansas or whatever, you know, like, I mean, that, that's, that's a, that's a, apocryphal idea of this concept which is a very real concept where small changes in one place echo across all these other changes and and the reason why silicon valley is unique is because it's almost impossible to articulate is it the the fact that california has laws that you can't have you, you can't have no, no compete clauses absolutely that's part of it is it part of the fact that there's you know that the, the the nature that Stanford is there that's certainly part of it is it the the Shockley going there that, that's part of that is it the fact that it's on the west coast and and the, and and the the sort of attitude and and the sort of the mindset that came around being there that's part of it is it part of the gold rush and this idea of that San Francisco has a pickaxe mentality hmm. that's part that's part of it like all there's so much that goes into it that it's impossible for anyone to know what it is and to recreate it and that and that's why it's special well, also the very fact it exists is part of is part of why it's so hard to recreate. I mean, we talked a lot at towards the end of last season about app ecosystems and how I love the way you described it. These complex systems can't be designed; they kind of have to evolve. I mean, this is true for clusters as well. And part of part of the reason why it's so hard to recreate is in the same way you think about how Apple gets out in front and then Google follows behind with an app ecosystem around these phones and once they get far enough out in front it becomes almost impossible for people to come behind and try and recreate it because there are all these benefits that are accruing like if you're a consumer you go where you go where there are the most apps or the platform where there's the most apps and if you're the developer then you go to the place where there are the most consumers and you get this virtuous cycle that becomes impossible to recreate and you can understand all these factors that have gone into it but even with a perfect understanding of those factors it doesn't mean you're going to be able to recreate it because this virtuous cycle is just pulling more and more people in. And to start it, to start it when it doesn't exist is one thing. But when these ecosystems are blooming, to try and create, I mean, ask Microsoft with their attempts to to follow up in the smartphone world, like to try and recreate it when those ecosystems are already there and blossoming and pulling people in. It's very hard to come along behind that. Well, just look at the name, Silicon Valley. I mean, the the great irony is that it's actually you can you can mimic that, right? I mean, Samsung's strength is is rests on silicon. You know, I mean, ta- Taiwan is you know their electronics industry. The most important part is silicon. Like that, that actually can be recreated, but actually no one actually wants to recreate silicon manufacturing. What they want to recreate is this ecosystem that produces companies like Uber, that produces mm. companies like, like Airbnb, that produces companies like Slack, that produces these, these startups that generate massive amounts of, of wealth from, from nothing. And, mm-hmm. and what's so interesting about that is the reason why that is in, the reason it's called Silicon Valley is because it started with silicon, right? But no one actually wants to go back and start creating silicon and, you know, ruining the environment. Like a lot of Silicon Valley, people don't realize it. There's lots of areas that are just, just ruined from that production back in the day. And they, they don't want to go back to that time where, you know, th- there was this, I mean, all the accidents that had to occur for mm. Silicon Valley was like the fact that, 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 that William Shockley happened to be from the area. And so he moved back there. Like that, that, like that's arguably the, the single most important fact why Silicon Valley is where it <laughs> is. And, and, and all those things that happen that look like accidents, that seem like accidents in this aspect where in the environment was right and the culture was right and, and you got the sort of 
the evolution of the industry, like it evolved. It wasn't made, it evolved. And that aspect of evolution is unavailable to other countries, unavailable to other municipalities. So they're trying to make it. And you just, no human is smart enough to make something so complex. They're just, they're just not. I agree. But what's interesting, and uh, to tie it back to your your daily update, is that in this instance, the environment has created something that's absolutely unprecedented in terms of a company that's having this level of this level of impact, this and and is valued at this much, and it's starting to provoke some unprecedented behavior from the the from the finance side in terms of the venture capitalists and how they approach these companies. Right. So, I mean, there's this balance. Part of the balance of Silicon Valley is between the the financing side and, and the startup side. And, you know, people love to rip on venture capitalists. I mean, for one, venture capitalists are much less all-powerful than, than, than most people realize. Because remember, venture capitalists have bosses also, <laughs> like mm. the people who actually have the money. Like the venture capitalists are, are, are middlemen in some respects. I mean, my apologies to the venture capitalists listening, but it, it, I mean, it's true. I mean, no, to be fair, a lot of them put in their own money. And that's, that's a factor with this, this, Benchmark specifically, which we, we can mention, like they, they put in a lot of their own money. I think something like 18% or 30%, some, a major portion of their, of the fund that's in part of this Uber lawsuit is their own money, which is, you know, an interesting factoid. But you, you have this ecosystem where there's LPs are an important player and underreported on players, the ones who actually provide the money, the limited partners. There's the general partners, which are the venture capitalists we all know of, uh, in, in know of more and more because being sort of a public presence is, is something that is, uh, in building a brand is, is important. It's important because you want to get deal full. You want, you want to know what's happening. You want to get access to the best deals before anyone else does because then you can get in at, at at a cheaper price. Mm-hmm. Then there's the the entrepreneurs and there's the startups and there's the people who work in startups and then there's the 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 lawyers and and the bankers and and everyone that makes this whole ecosystem go and over the years, it's changed. Like I wrote a few, you know, I wrote a couple of years ago about the effect that AWS has had on mm. on startups, and it's been a massive. It's been a, had a massive effect. The idea it used to be that your first round of funding went to buy computer servers, and now your first round of funding goes to oh, you've already built a product. Now we're going to you, well, angel funding comes in to give you a little bit of money to you can quit your job and actually build something. And once you build something, then you actually go start to look for venture funding. Like the the, the timeline has shifted and it's led to this explosion of early stage startups. And what's interesting is everyone's like, oh, Series A now is such a crunch or Series B is such a crunch. Well, that's sort of just the crunch has been pushed further down the timeline. The crunch used to happen at the very beginning. No one got funding. <laughs> like very few people got funding. Now way more people can get started. And, and so then, then, then the filter is just, is just further down the road. So there's been like, it's not like this has always been the same, but it's evolved. That's something that has evolved over the last 10, 15 years. It's been very interesting to observe how it's evolved and, 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 and that's fine. That's normal. Evolution is healthy. It's the sign of a healthy ecosystem. If it's always the same, never changing, that's a dying ecosystem. That's right. something that is, that is, that is ossifying. It's something I wrote about in the context of Apple. Like Apple's getting stronger and stronger. You know, it, 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 are they still able to evolve as they used to? I don't know. It's, I mean, we're not going to talk about it on, the, on this episode, but it's something interesting to think about this, this trade off between strength and ossification and suppleness and evolution. 
and the nature of the change is only compounded the compounded the ability for this environment to spin off more and more amazing companies like yes the series a crunch or series b crunch and it's pushing things further down the line but like you said the 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 fact that now that money is going towards building product rather than buying server hardware is the, it means that there are more startups and there is a direct relationship between number of goals and number of shots on goals. And this is, this is further speeding that flywheel up. So when people are, what, what they're doing with their time, what they're doing with their resources and their money is now figuring out whether what they're proposing is actually working rather than people having to make big guesses on what what is written down on a or, or, or in a pitch deck is going to work or not now they're actually making that assessment with the presence of data of it's actually got product market fit let's scale it up and it, it's resulting in the the ecosystem producing a there are more people that are able to start companies but b the companies that end up then getting funded are showing more and more signs of success that's a great point. And, 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 and it's this idea that venture capital is going to obsolete is ridiculous. I mean, because the truth is as, as these ideas and companies push more and more into the real world, the challenge is much less about just getting the technology built and much more of a marketing challenge. It's much more about understanding the, the, the who you're trying to reach actually. Not, you know, advertising, whether it be direct advertising, whether it be whatever means you use, Salesforce, whatever it might be. So, like the nature of what venture funding is needed for has changed. But again, the the, the broader point, though, and the point I'm trying to really land here is it, it's evolved, and evolution is healthy, and that's okay. That that's something normal that's happened. What I think is makes Uber such a big deal. And again, weaving aside the stuff we've already talked about, the impact on society, you know, what happens when uh, no one owns a car or, or in dense urban areas or you only use the car on the weekend, et cetera. There's a lot, like we've talked about that. Let's set that aside for a moment. Mm. And the reason why Uber is such a critical, critical story to understanding technology and to understanding the value is because Uber is just as important as a financial story as it is from a a, a societal changing story. And this is what I mean. When you have a company, Uber is not an evolution. Uber is a mutation. We've had this situation where even Airbnb, it's on the very edges of the way Valley, of the way Valley companies used to evolve, but they're making, you know, very real revenue. I don't know the profit and loss numbers, but I mean, their, their, their valuations with 30 billion or something like that. They've raised a, a few billion dollars. It's on the edge of what's happened before, but it's not, it's like the difference between Air, Airbnb and like the normal sort of Valley on the way to an IPO company is smaller than the difference between Airbnb and Uber. Like Uber is just this massive, massive outlier where they are taking in billions of dollars. Their valuation is sky high and their burn rate is just astronomical, like hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And we've never seen a company at this scale. It looks like a typical Silicon Valley company that's focused on growth and that they're burning a lot of money to acquire market share and that their unit, their unit costs, at least one would hope are positive. Mm-hmm. And over time, as they, as they gain scale, that they, like they should be turned positive. Again, there's lots of questions around there. We're not getting into right now, but it looks like a Valley company. It just like a hundred times as big. And it, what's become clear to me as I've as observing this lawsuit and all the stuff that's going on is it's like this shock to the system. And it's fundamentally changed everything we thought we knew about companies and how, th- how venture capitalists deal with them, how regulatory agents deal with them, how we as an industry ought to deal with them. And that more than anything is sort of the big lesson that I've taken away from what's happened over the, over the last few weeks in particular. 
So um, for folks who might not have read or followed along, why don't we give a little bit of background on what the, the context of this lawsuit is and then dive into exactly what you just talked about was like, this is a shock to the system and the impact it's having. I've, we've talked about Uber multiple times. I think folks are aware there's been all sorts of scandals uh, that culminated in uh, CEO Travis Kalanick first taking a leave of absence and then a week later, uh, according to some sort of uh, dramatic confrontation in a Chicago hotel room by led by Benchmark. Benchmark was the Series A investor in, in Uber. They did a couple follow-on rounds as well. They are the largest shareholder in Uber, and they have the most voting rights in Uber. But it, by no means close to a majority. It's, it's wealth. It, Klanik has the second highest share and controls a ton of votes and has traditionally had a few alleys on the board that give him control. And so, anyhow, he he agreed to step down. Since then, Uber has been looking for a new CEO, and reports have been pretty consistent that Klanik has been playing a big role in that. Whether it's a positive role or a negative role is 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 uh, hmm. a matter of interpretation. Uh, a few about a month ago, a few weeks ago, it was reported that Meg Whitman, for uh, currently of HP Enterprise, because HP split, and more. More relevantly, the CEO that didn't found eBay, but really grew eBay and led eBay through its IPO and, and to a lot of success. And eBay was, to take this full circle, was Benchmark's first real big investment. Benchmark was founded in 1995. Their, their sort of most famous early that period investment was eBay. So they're very familiar with her. She was reportedly desired by much of the board for the job, was opposed by, reportedly, by Kalanick and, and Ariane Huffington. She, once these stories leaked, as you would expect, that was sort of an untenable position for a person with a job. So she said, I'm not interested, et cetera, et cetera. And I suspect that was one of the triggering points here where, and basically the, the, the complaint is that is that Uber added three seats to the board that Kwana controlled a year ago. And that was post the, 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 the main folks of the lawsuit is this Waymo lawsuit of, mm. against Uber about, about auto and that Uber knew that, uh, Anthony Lewandowski, the, who, who founded auto had taken content from Google and didn't disclose it to the board. Thus, all votes after that point were basically illegitimate. Seems a bit of a stretch, you know, but that, that's the argument. And also, oh, the, probably the other more, the more applicable thing is that Kalanick allegedly signed a letter in that hotel room saying that he would change the, the way those other two seats were appointed such that they were normal board seats that were subject to the entire board, not his personal sort of like right to appoint them. Uh, anyhow, the, the details of the lawsuit, that was way too long. The details are less important. Than the fact that the lawsuit even, even exists. Right. It is unprecedented, unprecedented, right? Unprecedented for, I mean, there have been lawsuits between investors and, and, and CEOs and stuff like that. Like, but just the, the visibility and scale of a company like Uber to have the lead investor suing the, the former founder is, is it, it, like, it's jaw dropping. It's absolutely I mean, jaw dropping. These guys should be partying somewhere together to have gotten this company to the point where it's at this stage. Like, the alignment should be. I mean, this is a once in a lifetime outcome for everybody involved. And the fact that, Despite that fact, despite the, the, the fact that this is a, as you described, a mutation of which we have never seen anything like it. Every, everybody's at, I mean, people, not everybody, but there are a lot of people at each other's throats right now really suggest that there's something interesting going on here. Right. And, and, and so this was sort of the, that, that was sort of the starting point for my article this week is what on earth is benchmark thinking? I mean, because the, the issue, the reason why you rarely see this or you, or if it happens, it happens under wraps and no one talks about it. It's very, very secretive is 
particularly in the last decade, there's been this real push towards being founders friendly. And this, I mean, this isn't a new concept. There are stories of, of entrepreneurs feeling, uh, treated poorly by venture, by venture capitalists, like, uh, and going back to, to the nineties. But the really famous one, at least for young, you know, I could call myself a young person, young people like myself is last decade where Sean Parker felt Sequoia treated him badly and therefore ensured that Sequoia would have no chance to invest in Facebook. And now Sequoia is like the most famous, most successful venture firm of all time. And they basically were completely shut off from Facebook because they treated someone who didn't seem to be connected to Facebook, particularly at the time, in his interpretation badly. And by the way, it's a very, you know, no one knows what actually happened, but there's at least uh, some evidence that Sequoia was justified in the way they treated Parker. But Anyhow, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Even if they were justified, their, the few million dollars that they invested in Parker's startup called Plaxo prevented them from even getting a chance at a the return of a lifetime, which Facebook was. Yeah, and there's a funny story for folks that don't know it about Zuckerberg turning up to the Sequoia offices wearing pajamas as a result, but that's a... That's a different podcast for a different time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things that that Zuckerberg I think has been very clear that he really regrets. <laughs> you know, like that was the that was among the height of the uh, Zuckerberg being an immature idiot stage, uh, <laughs> where he's you know his, his his business card was "I'm CEO, bitch," and then they basically showed up to embarrass Sequoia. And and again, but the broader the broader point is that for the sake of a few million dollars, Sequoia forewent the opportunity of the sort of return that is why you're in venture capital. The point of venture capital is the massive returns. It, if you lose, if you lose $10 million, you lose $50 million, whatever. Like that, that's the attitude you have to have as a venture capitalist because the downside is one X. You lose your money. Oh, well, lost my money. The upside is, is theoretic is like infinite. It, it, in, in the case of Facebook, it, it really is the return of a lifetime, the return of a career that makes that, that, that makes your entire career. This is exactly what gets, this is what gets at what's so surprising about this whole thing, right? Like it, the founder friendly thing, because you don't want to miss out. And yet this thing that we're talking about is such a mutant that, that it's causing the venture capitalists to behave differently. Right. Well, there's one other, I think, uh, important factor to understand about what's happened to, to startup funding over the last decade. And that has been, there's been this, just a massive influx of capital. Mm. And, and part of it is you know, a big reason without question is, is super low interest rates around the world. It's like capital is searching for a return all over the mm. world. Silicon Valley is one of the places that is consistently delivering it. And so what you're getting is there's just been an unbelievable influx of capital. That has further tipped the scale. So it's not just the Facebook Sequoia story. I should have included this in the update. I don't know why I didn't. It's not just the Facebook Sequoia story that has made venture capitalists, you know, to be more deferential to founders for fear of what will happen in the future. It's also that there's more competition. Mm. Like you can't afford to be imperial as a venture capitalist, even if you're a Sequoia or even if you're a benchmark, because there's so many other sources of money in, in the current environment. And so these two factors together, th like that, that story, that, that Parker Facebook story had a massive impact on the ecosystem combined with the influx of capital led to this ongoing environment where basically founders had complete free reign. And you have a situation, you have a company like Snapchat where it's not just founder controlled. There are like, 
if you own stock, you have zero voting rights. Zero. It's not even like pretending like, oh, you have some voting rights, but there's these powerful rights that the CEO can always overrule you. They're not even pretending. And you can question whether that lack of accountability is like yeah. the fact that Snapchat can't build an actual functional business. But it's take, it's gone all the way to this extreme. It's interesting because tra- tra- the, the, the narrative in the valley is that this is traditionally worked out as a good thing. It's a, only a relative, a relatively new thing, but you think about these founder control companies that have turned into these mega corporations, whether it's Bezos and his control over Amazon or even more so, um, w- what's happened at Google and Facebook where the founders have created these classes of voting rights where basically they have ultimate control over the company. And because the outcomes have been so tremendous people are starting to uh people are starting to view that as an article of faith almost that when you let the financial markets gain too much control and you take it away from the founders the outcomes aren't as good versus when you just let the founders do what these visionary founders do whatever they want but what's interesting is this case of Uber and the case you just mentioned of Snapchat are the first instances where it's starting to be the case where actually maybe you do want it a little bit more balanced. By the way, uh, I have to correct you. Um, Amazon is actually a really interesting counterexample because mm. Bezos is the largest stockholder, but he does not have a majority. Yeah. Like he is, he, and so he's like the the killer example of actually you don't have to have majority voting control mm. to to build for the long term to do it do what's correct, uh, but. The, the the more pertinent example, or the correct one, is really Google. Google is the one that came out and like they set up this dual class share structure that Facebook copied, and actually Facebook took it to an even greater extreme, where Zuckerberg has even more control. And then Snapchat took it to his like logical endpoint, which is like, why are we even pretending that anyone else has voting rights? Mm. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, sorry, I just wanted to put that in because no, you're it, right it, too. But yeah, so you so yeah, so you have the situation with, with Snapchat, and Uber, which by the way are both benchmark investments, and it's interesting because benchmark is considered one of the more sort of old school, old line venture capitalist firms. Like you don't have to be a founder to work there. Like at so many at so many new firms, there are the the many of the partners are unabashed. Like this is what we do. We are financiers. We're we're, we're money guys. Much more in the sort of the Sequoia old, old, old model than the sort of new like. It's all founder-centric sort of thing. This idea of founder-centricity is not just like the way venture capitalists behave towards companies. It's in the, been, become the very makeup of venture capital itself, where it's very hard to be a venture capitalist now, at least a GP, if you're not a former founder. Like that's that's just become a sort of part of the job requirements. It's been, and it's interesting to think about how all those things have happened. Anyhow, that's neither here nor there. We're, like, that's another podcast. What's interesting about this lawsuit and sort of the point of this article is when you get this big, when you're as big as Uber is, and just to put in context how large Uber is, Benchmark is often thought of as the most successful venture capital firm in the in, in the in the industry in the at least in the in the last ten to fifteen years. Over the last ten years, the value of all of Benchmark's exits, and we don't know like Benchmark's actual return, like because that's almost impossible to know. But like the value of all their exits, whether they be major announced acquisitions or whether they be IPOs, is about seventy four seventy four billion dollars. So that's that, again, that's adding up the top line value of all, and that includes Snapchat. So seventy-four billion dollars. That is only, or sorry, I sorry, has been seventy-five point nine six billion dollars to be exact. That's only six billion dollars more than Uber's last valuation. One company for Benchmark is basically the equivalent of of fifteen years worth of investments. I mean, it sure puts into perspective that notion of. 
uh, <laughs> it sure puts into perspective that notion that you're better off not worrying about the losses, the 10 million or the 1 million. It's better to just get that right one. And there is no more, or at least it, and up until recently, there's been no more right one than Uber to put your money into. Right. So if you're already there, and this is the point of thing, so people are missing, like, what is Benchmark thinking? And founders like, I'm going to never work with Benchmark, et cetera, et cetera. Benchmark doesn't care. <laughs> if they can bring Uber into land, for anything close to its current valuation. And I believe that Benchmark still believes that Uber is worth more. I mean, the thing to remember, they're particularly interesting just because Gurley in particular, Bill Gurley, who was the board member for a long time until he stepped down previously, like he has been pushing – one, he's always been sort of a marketplace guy, Grubhub and, and, and Seamless and all these sorts of things and Open Table. So he's always been focused on these sort of like these, these middle players, right? Mm. And he's been specifically focused on the ride-sharing taxi thing well before Uber came along. So there's a bit in Brad Stone's latest book about, about Uber, which is hilariously out of date already, but <laughs> about like Gurley's like three- to four-year search for a company to invest in in this space. So the reason I bring that up is not to like val- you know valorize Gurley, but to point out Benchmark are probably more than even most venture capitalists like true believers in this space and the potential for Uber mm-hmm. to be a big company. So so their their mindset is like it, the rational thing for Benchmark to do is you know what if this means the end of Benchmark it's still worth it. That's how big this deal is. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, that really does put into perspective that the most successful venture firm is potentially willing to throw away its reputation, willing to throw throw away everything, throw away the ability to successfully make its ability to compete in future investments, given how founder-friendly uh, has become such an important thing. This is so big. This is such a big payday. Doesn't matter. We'll focus on getting this right, and if we get it right, we like let's just retire. We're done. Yeah, I mean, speaking of retiring, I mean, I mean, Gurley is by far the oldest member of the partnership. Like, you can see how this will play out. Like, if they land this, like, he'll take all the blame, and they're like, "Oh, that was that was Gurley's problem. He's gone now. (laughs) You can invest with us; it'll be fine." Um, Anyhow, uh, I mean, I'm just 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 surmising how how it might play out. But what's so so? There's lots of interesting points to pull out here. So one. The big mistake that Uber made, and this is a mistake that that Kalanick made specifically, is this is the idea of would you mess with like what works and you try to do something completely different? Like there's all these these second and third order effects that you can't anticipate. And clearly one of the effects was in game theory terms was changing this from an iterated game where your typical venture capitalist, any one investment's not worth like sacrificing the reputation. It's not worth being thought of as the bad guys because it's going to endanger what happens, right? And it, it turns out in iterated games, the optimal strategy is usually it, it, it's, it's generally to be nice. The nicer you are to your opponents in an iterated game, they'll be nice back to you and you get reciprocity. And so people are nice not because they're nice people. They're nice because they're motivated to be nice. That's the optimal strategy to take. Whereas if you're in a single play game or you have a finite number of games where you know it's going to end, then it fundamentally changes your strategy. You want to get what you can get when you can get it because you have limited opportunities to get it. And so single play games, the optimal strategy is to be mean. 
And what Quantic did with his refusal to go public, and once you go public, it totally changes, right? You're just one company among many. Your investors are just one investor among many. Like the, the whole dynamics of everything on your company fundamentally changes. And, and by trying to stay in this environment that is basically evolved over decades to support a certain type of company, by trying to stay in that environment like an overgrown child that wants to stay in like kindergarten for too long, what happened was it fundamentally changed the nature of the game. He was in an environment that was suited towards relatively small companies, bringing them along and then releasing them into the ocean when they're ready to go, right? By wanting to stay in that small pond, it, it all the rules changed on him because he was just too big. And I certainly, I don't think he anticipated that. I don't know if anyone <laughs> fully appreciated the way things would change once Uber got this large. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you talk about it in terms of game theory. Uh, it actually, uh, if if companies like this are the end goal, it's interesting because rather than it being a one time game or a many time game, it almost it almost becomes like VC firms are a con artist looking for a long con, and they will stick around for fifteen years and make all these returns until one of them comes along that's so important that they will. They'll be willing to throw it all away to get this payday and then they'll just peace out afterwards. It's, it's the, the nature of the, the nature. And no one has, no one's seen a company like this before. So this is a completely new strategy. And I think you're right. I think it was completely unpredicted. And so this is, and this gets at the, the sort of overall theme that I started with. Why is Uber so important? Why do we spend so much time talking about it? And, like there's so many interesting things to take take away from this, and, and I guess one of the sort of ones I keep coming back to is is you mess with ecosystems sort of at at your own risk, and it's almost like this. Certainly, the sort of catalyst was the the Facebook Sean Parker Sequoia sort of story, but the sort of environment, almost like a invasive species, was all this excess capital and all this mm. excess capital that was flowing into into the environment. Some sort of like like there's a big problem from the Midwest and like th there's like these these weird fish that have invaded like the the, the Great Lakes and there are these n nasty fish that just wipe out the natural population because they're imported somewhere else. They have no natural predator and you have this situation where it just totally screws up the ecosystem and an ecosystem with the introduction of of the wrong sort of species that's not that where the ecosystem hasn't evolved to handle it like you can wipe out an entire ecosystem by by having this sort of species and and i almost feel that's that's something that has happened in the valley at least in the case of uber and it's something to be very i think wary of going forward this influx of capital is almost like a sort of invasive species like there was value in there not being too much capital there being some sort of limitation some sort of constraint on these companies and it was a constraint on the companies that was for their own damn good uh, it's interesting i can see both sides of it i mean in the same way though that uh, the introduction of things like aws and uh, all these elements that have all the, this infrastructure that used to require large amounts of capital and the right relationships and everything else in order for you to be able to raise to start a company. Now, in a certain sense, capital has become much more commoditized. And if you think the entrepreneurs are the, the, like the critical element, then more in the same way that the servers have become commoditized, the capital has become commoditized. I think what I think 
and I certainly see like the removal of the restraints and people going crazy and you don't want to create a bubble environment. And I think it was like that a few years ago, but it's pulled back a fair bit since then. But I think the issue here is that, uh, Kalanick saw that this influx of capital meant that he could keep staying, he could keep his company private and just keep raising capital and growing without all the oversight that is traditionally associated with going public, all the reporting and all the other stuff that goes along with it that's causing pain. And he thought, well, I can, I have more control. There's no reasons why I shouldn't. I can just keep raising all this money. Like everybody loves my company. I'm the man. Like I can call up whoever it is and they'll just stick billions in. I'm just going to keep growing without the oversight. What I think the problem was he didn't foresee that there might actually be a downside, which is he got so big that he created divergent interests between what he wanted and what was in the best interests of shareholders. Well, you can draw this problem to everything. I mean, what what is a reason why the, why the the culture at Uber could could become so rotten? Because there was no recourse. Because you had all these mm. employees with their stock locked up, and yeah. so there is this perverse incentive to stay. And to not raise a ruckus because you're sitting in the most valuable startup of all time. Like you, and so you have all these terrible incentives for employees. And to leave, you have to come up with like like hundreds of thousands of dollars at a minimum to pay taxes on your your, yeah. your stock to be able to hold it or or, or to buy it out or whatever it might be. And and Aquanic also completely shut down secondary sales, so no one could sell their stock. And and you end up in the situation. And so then what happens? You have people stuck in a place. It's going to turn rotten. It just it just does. I mean, this is a problem that that I think Microsoft had. Like one thing that's really interesting for Microsoft, not not, not that they had widespread sexual harassment, but uh, one thing interesting about Microsoft that's always made it interesting is the fact that it's in Seattle and not in the Valley. And I think a very underrated reason why Microsoft has been able to have a bit of a resurgence here over the over the last few years is because they still have a lot of their really great talent. And why do they still have a lot of their really great talent? Because their talent, they all bought houses in Seattle. They all bought houses in Redmond. They don't want to move. They have families. And and, and so you whereas other companies like HP or 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 Silicon Graphics or, or whatever you want to list that were in the Valley as or Yahoo, as soon as things started to go south, all their great people left and they went to other companies. Why? They didn't have to move house, they didn't have to move their kids out of school. They just went to the company across the street. And that's part of what makes Silicon Valley great. This idea that, you know, employees are already there. This massive talent base is already there. You don't have to import people. You don't have to give them moving packages. Packages and all this sort of stuff. You like literally, people change jobs all the time because there's no trouble to it. Like you could have four jobs and your kid doesn't even know because he's still going to the same school every day, right? Whereas Microsoft, they had everyone that was that was that was there, and no one worked at Amazon because it was a brutal place to work. So it worked out well. But the problem for Microsoft is, I think it also it was also damaging because you had a lot of people that didn't want to be there that were there. And so you got this sort of you got a very toxic sort of internal culture that that sort of fed upon itself and ate itself and was so insular and that was a big problem that's part of the reason why it took Microsoft so freaking long to wake up to wake up to their place in the world and how things had changed why they could actually believe they could launch a phone 8 years too late and actually take over the market why they mm. thought a brown zoom would actually knock off the iPod right because you had this sort of insularity and toxicity internally that resulted from people just being stuck in a place too long. Well, that's, I mean, 
in some respects, that's what's I think that's a problem at Uber. You have people that are stuck there that hate it, that hate each other, that take it out on each other, that feel repressed or feel other people are being unfair, or some people are are, are and it goes on both sides. Like obviously obviously there's there's problems that are happening on one side, but there's people in other parts of the company that are like, there's no problem here and you're making me look bad and hurting my stock value. And and like and again, I'm not justifying or excusing anyone or anything. I'm saying the conditions of this company that refuses to go public it cr- breeds toxicity internally. Yeah, I mean it's this is one of the this is one of the themes that's come up time and time again. The strengths are inversely related to the weaknesses, right? And you think it's a fantastic thing that you get to keep the these employees and all that knowledge throughout this period of growing and potentially going public and you're not going to lose people when things get bumpy like there are a whole lot of reasons why getting to you you would think at face value keeping people close would be fantastic and what you don't realize until you start to get in this situation is there is this adverse side effect that there are people who want out who can't get out because the the this is such a huge financial outcome that they feel crazy to leave and they can't afford they can't afford to leave. Right. And again, I'm not saying that like people were sexually irrational have just left. Like that's not what I'm saying in the slightest at all. And so please don't take it that way. Like what happened was wrong and, and it, it very well probably would have happened without Uber going public or not. So just to be super clear, but the general point though about weaving aside that specific issue of sexual harassment and just the general thought that Uber has this terrible culture, like of course they have a terrible culture because you have a bunch of people who are stuck together that don't want to be there and and you know and feel bitter and that just breeds resentment b- breeds bitterness so just 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 to clarify that point but there's other points like uh, uh I mentioned a central part of this lawsuit is this this stuff about Waymo and I said at the time that the Waymo lawsuit was mm-hmm. fired against Uber that I predicted like this is going to be what actually takes Glanic down uh, and and this lawsuit by benchmark seems to validate that just because clearly the toxic culture is the fault of the CEO, but it's, it's one of those things that's from a legal and sort of financial perspective. Like how do you actually prove out that line such that you can actually Mm. remove someone from their job? Whereas spending $680 million fraudulently, that's like a far cleaner and clearer way to like get someone out of a job. You know what I mean? So that was, that was the reason. And, but one, would a public would would the public market tolerate Uber going into self-driving cars, for example? Which I've maintained, I think it's a bad idea. I think it's dumb. I think it's farther away. Level five driving cars are farther away than people think. One, two, Uber controls demand, controls the people, and ought to partner with all these companies that are heavily incentivized to build these systems, such that when they come online, Uber just sits on top of all of them. Like I've, I've argued that for ages. And three, to think that Uber has it within them in the middle of everything else we're fighting a global war to for for the for for tax share that they can take on freaking google like it's stupid like why would you fight google on google's territory anyhow i've i've long maintained i think the whole thing makes no strategic sense that uber is not good at strategy and guess what if they were public shareholders might have agreed with me and be able to put pressure to stop uber from doing that and not even getting in this mess in the first place i, I mean look at salesforce salesforce has been phenomenally successful driven a ton of shareholder value and shareholders stopped Benioff from buying Twitter, which was a good idea. It was a smart to not let, let him buy Twitter. Sometimes your shareholders, it's good to have a check. It's good to have something that pulls you back from doing something stupid. And so maybe that would have stopped them. And by the way, if Uber was public, you can sure as hell bet someone would have sued them for the exact same reasons that Benchmark did for apparently yeah. making it this some sort of deal with Lewandowski before he came over. 
Yeah, I mean, and and that was it was dumb. And to think that if if that's in, indeed what has happened, and he thought he could get away with it, he's crazy. the The problem, I guess, with what you've just said is it's it's hard to know the circumstances in which, uh, in which having shareholders do this is good, and which it's not. Because I remember when I mean, and I'm sure you do too, when Facebook went public and shareholders were hammering the stock, and there was pressure on Mark Zuckerberg to like do something about it, and it. It now, like, look at them now and his ability to, or his, the, uh, what was afforded of, of him, the ability to just ignore that pressure and focus on what was right for the company turned out to be the right thing to do. And it's, it's easy to cherry pick examples from both sides, though admittedly, there are many fewer companies that have this structure such that the founder is able to ignore all those external pressures. But it's hard to tell the circumstances in which one performs better than the other. You know, you're exactly right. You're right to bring up Facebook. And it's not just that. It's not just the pressure afterwards. And I, and I wrote at the time, I still think it's true, that Facebook should have bought Waze. And the reason they didn't is because they, their stock was under so much pressure at the time they were on sale that they, they couldn't afford to spend a billion dollars, which at this point seems laughable. Mm. Uh, um, so, yeah, there's that. And there's the fact that the investors wanted Facebook to sell out to Yahoo for for three billion dollars or whatever it was or two point whatever whatever the number was, and the fact that Zuckerberg was empowered to say no it was the best thing that happened to those investors. Like I am by no means arguing that investors know it all, and certainly mm. not arguing that public shareholders know it all. Like they they know less than less than anyone else. But there's an aspect on the same side. I think when it comes to these sort of first and second order effects, like the founder does know best. He knows the company, understands the rhythms of the company, understands where things are going, where the line can be pushed, where it needs to be pulled back. But when it comes, but by virtue of being inside and of being so focused, you lose sight of the sort of third and fourth and fifth order effects because you're just, you don't have the context to see them. And what was, what became so dangerous about Uber is, by virtue of the sense of having unlimited capital, there there became just a complete abdication of any sort of view of third and fourth and fifth order effects, and just a, this this super narrow focus on on first and second effects, and and uh, like it's something that you know I I certainly was always. And it, it, it's easy. To, it's always easy to see looking backwards. I, I admit that yeah. like, I didn't write these stories, th- these issues before. I was always uncomfortable with them not going public, and I always pushed them to go public in part because I think being public makes it easier to make acquisitions. I think Uber needed to do more acquisitions, but I mean that was in retrospect that was a like a fifth or sixth reason that they should have gone public sooner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think you're almost giving them too much credit though around viewing the first and second order effects, yeah, right? No like. <laughs> I, I mean, you've said it time and time again. The, the 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 space is so good that it's enabled them to be strategically inept, and they have made strategically inept decisions time and time again. The self-driving car thing. You 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 asked. Why did they get into this? They should have partnered with Google. Well, it was probably a reaction of Kalaknik because of the, 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 the kind of, oh my gosh, with Google, like there's a bit of testiness here. And it's probably in the same way that he fought all the taxi companies and he's won. Well, we'll take on Google too and we'll beat them as well. So we'll start up this self-driving car thing. And the idea that you, if it turns out that he conspired to in, encourage what happened with 
with uh, Otto and Waymo, like that they knew that there was stuff coming out of Google and into Uber. And the thought that he could actually get away with it, like that's not even considering a first order effect. It's crazy to think that the CEO of a company that's worth as much as this would jeopardize the entire thing over something like this on the belief that no one will figure it out. It's nuts. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of things that are that are nuts, and you know it's uh, it's honestly kind of frustrating because if Uber if like if Uber ends up not working out, like one that that'll continue to be a massive story because like all this money went into a company that ultimately didn't make yeah. it. And by the way, uh, people always forget Uber has 17 percent of Didi, uh, the the Chinese ride sharing mm-hmm. company, which is going to work out. They have a monopoly; they're going to be dominant. It's in a better market for ride sharing than anywhere else in the world, anyway. At worst, at the absolute worst case scenario, is Uber is like a Yahoo type stock yeah, uh, where, where yeah, they have Alibaba. Alibaba, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but if it doesn't work out, it, what's going to be super frustrating is everyone's going to say, see, told you the model doesn't work. And we're not actually, no, we're not going to know if it's because the model didn't work. Like, we're, we're not going to know. Experiment. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, it, it, it might be true. It might be true that the model was fundamentally flawed, or it might be true that inept management and, and a bad culture drove them into the ground. Like, or maybe they're going to pull it off. And then if they pull it off, that would actually be a pretty strong argument that the model does work. But mm. anyhow, the, it, it's kind of a shame that it, the whole thing's become so rotten. Like, even just from a pure sort of like academic theoretical standpoint, mm. the number of lessons that can be learned here is more, uh, is more a what not to do than what might be possible. Yeah, and I mean, I and we we've talked about it, but I can't help but bring it up again. It frustrates me because there are instances where they've pushed back against the rules, where I'm really glad they did. Like the way that they went into the cities, and yeah, there were these regulations, but the regulations weren't good regulations. They were driven by the existing the existing way things that were done and protecting incumbents, and they pushed against those and they overturned them. And everything that's happening now, all around the world, like. The the, the revolution that's happening is because they broke the rules, but their inability to distinguish between when it was right to do so and when it was wrong is just so immensely frustrating. Yeah, but it, you know, this is a, I think, a point of reflection for you and I because I think we've mm. both argued that that was a good thing and that there's like some rule breaking that was acceptable and some rule breaking that isn't. And that's already a sort of tenuous place to be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of morally speaking or whatever it might be. And I think that the reflection for you and I comes in the fact that it's not just, it's not enough to sit here and say, bad job, Uber. You know, you, you didn't know you should have broken those rules, but not those rules. And you should have known better. Mm-hmm. And I've sat there and done that. And I've pointed to in particular, uh, Kalanick not firing Emil Michael back in 2014 as yeah. a real turning point where it was from the very top level of the company. It was decreed that clearly wrong behavior is tolerated. And, mm-hmm. and like that was the chance to draw that line to say, okay, yes. In cities, because they're corrupt and they're locally regulatory capture and and <laughs> straight up corruption, it's justified that we're taking this approach and we're we're bringing the public to our side and it's being a sort of like democratic solution, you know, to this issue. You can make that argument, but if you make that argument, you got to be pretty damn sure to draw the line somewhere else, right? And that's kind of been my my point. But the, again, the reflection I have for myself is, well, it's on me as an observer to say, okay, I am arguing that. Travis Kalanick should have the power to make decisions about which laws are okay to break and which taboos and mores are not okay to break. What I did not do, what I failed to do is consider what checks are there on Kalanick because there better damn sure be some checks on him if he is being entrusted with this level of power 
that I am implicitly entrusting him with. And now I look back and, damn it, there weren't any checks on him at all. You had this environment with all this capital flowing in and this mindset yeah. in the Valley to be founder-friendly. And, and, and meanwhile, I'm on the side cheerleading. Give this guy more power to make these, these decisions about local governments are wrong. And he, the guy has no checks on him. And, and that was wrong by me. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, it, it, well, I'll let me, let me present the, the, the mitigating circumstances. We're in uncharted territory and looking back now, it's, uh, it's clear that, I mean, it almost seems self obvious. Like you give, you want to just give someone all this power and there'll be no checks and balances. And, uh, I mean, we've talked about it in the context of, uh, of Zuckerberg and Facebook and the impact on the media, but it, 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 it should extend more broadly. And I, I think it's a conversation that's worth having, uh, around tech in general, the extent of which these companies are having an incredible impact on society, the power that they have managed to accumulate, it's, it's more than many governments in some respects. And yeah, if, if you want to, if you want to, uh, concentrate that much power in one spot, you, yeah, you're right. You damn better be sure there are some checks or you'll, you'll end up in a very bad place pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, this is certainly a topic that we've visited again and again, you know, mostly in the context of Facebook, but you know, something that certainly came up this week, you know, and there was this issue with Cloudflare and and the Nazi neo Nazi websites. Uh, I got to call it the right thing. I actually called it. There's another message board that is a similar name. Uh, Daily Stormer. Uh, you know where? It, it, I mean, I I I really appreciated the the CEO's approach. So he's kind of always been a real free speech absolutist. You go back and like these controversies are not new to Cloudflare. Like what Cloudflare does is it basically offers a service where you put it, it's a proxy service. You put it in front of your website. If your site is hit by distributed denial of service attack, it won't go down because Cloudflare will basically absorb it, right? And it's it's totally neutral. Anyone can sign up for the service and they can absorb it. And what that meant is Daily Stormer signed up for it and so they couldn't be taken down by a distributed you know, d- denial of service attack. Again, so this has come up again and again. He's like, "Hey, we're we're part of the infra- infrastructure. Like, if we don't offer this service, there are sites that that like cannot exist, and we're not going to put ourselves in a position of deciding what sites are acceptable to be online, which are not." And he's he's like, "They've they've defended things that have been tough, that have resulted in a lot of pressure being yeah, like being like pro ISIS websites. Wiki- like that was a big yeah, thing. Of WikiLeaks. Weeks WikiLeaks is another one. Yeah, they 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 they've they've stood in front of WikiLeaks. They've so it's been on you know on on both sides of, of, of I would say there's both sides. Um, yeah, or the, and there's another one like a really interesting one about like some Chechen alleged terrorist site, right? And there is this inner this this super like accusatory interview, and and I posted a, an excerpt in the Daily Update, and like the answers were. I mean, he clearly, this guy Matthew Prince has thought a ton, a ton about it. So anyhow, this week, the after the the horrific events in Charlottesville, the the Daily Stormer wrote a post about the the woman that was that was killed and was just awful. It was vile, vile stuff. And the response was not just to say it was vile, but massive social media campaign against all the companies that provide infrastructure for the Daily Stormer. So that included the registration. So that was GoDaddy, and GoDaddy kicked them off, and then they moved to Google, and Google kicked them off, and they eventually ended up in Russia, <laughs> which, uh, you know. Uh, and, then, and then, yeah, so they went to Russia to support neo-Nazis. It's, it was weird. Mm. Uh, so anyhow, <laughs> there was, but Cloudflare was still sort of the consistent the kissing piece there and people are accusing him of supporting them and all this sort of stuff and you know really which i think is is pretty disingenuous and, and dishonest to say the least anyhow 
the moral of the story is on Wednesday, and this is his this is his words. I woke up in a bad mood, so I decided to kick them off the internet, and I loved it. I, I didn't love this whole episode, but I loved him putting it that way because his point he, clearly he was I, I, he was trying to make a point, and that point is the reality of the internet and the infrastructure as it is today that it actually leads this mass amount of centralization is mm. such that some guy can wake up in a bad mood and kick someone off the internet. That's yeah. where we're at. It's nuts. I mean, and we've talked about this in the, again, this is, this, this idea shouldn't be new to folks who have been listening to us for a while. We have talked about this specifically in the instance of Facebook and their ability to control an algorithm. And with that many eyeballs, like the extent to which they can nudge people and influence things should they so desire to do so is incredible. And the back and forth on like the motivations for doing so, we got into that and leave that aside. But as these, these companies evolve and as you get these virtuous cycles that we talked about right at the start of the show uh, today, there are going to evolve these companies that have a very limited number of these companies that do a very good job in providing this infrastructure in the same way that you said uh, Taiwan or Samsung have done a fantastic job with silicon. Like increasingly, it's the case that there end up just being one or two players in all these critical junctures of the internet. And if you don't have their support or one of the CEOs of one of these companies wakes up in a bad mood and is grumpy and decides to kick you off, then you're toast. Like that, that I mean, it's, and it, I mean, I'm not super upset that the Daily Stormer is gone. I don't think that there will be many people who are listening to this and saying, oh my gosh, that's, it's terrible that I can't get my daily dose of neo-Nazi news. I, I, I certainly hope not. But this is the slippery slope that that Prince was trying to avoid. Like it's clear now that if it can be done for one, it can be done for any any of these companies, any of these things, whether it's WikiLeaks or something else that a massive social media pressure campaign starts on. And he can't say anymore, we've never done this because he's done it once now. It's not just the sort of like slip with soap argument though, which I think I've articulated previously. I, I appreciate the general idea, but it was something I just push back always is any sort of absolutist rule. Like the, the mm. you know, I mean, it, it's one of those things where you can be so tolerant that you no longer exist because the intolerant people killed you, right? I mean, like there, there's there, there no rule. If your if your philosophy of life is is all about absolutes, then mm. it's going to fail. It just is, and this is a sort of aspect in general that I think is missing in so much debate about technology, about about the world, about everything. Like just this. A philosophy of doubt. Like we don't know everything. There's so much we don't know. Our society is so complex. Technology is so complex. The way these computers work is so complex. The way the internet works is so complex. The way Silicon Valley as an ecosystem has formed is so complex that to pretend we can know it all is, is not just foolhardy, but it's, it's actively destructive because you will start to impose things, to decide things such that and there will be consequences that will happen that you have no idea what they might be. And, and again, I think the Uber thing is an example. You had this massive mutation of a company that has ended up being unbelievably destructive and because it, it just like the the audacity to think that we can create something that's never been created before. Again, not not the idea of creating like a disruptive sort of startup, but a a entity that can be worth sixty eight billion dollars and have zero accountability. Like it, it, like it's it 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 was it was foolhardy, and you know that's sort of the 
and that's that's part of what makes this this whole thing you know scary is is you know I reject the sort of absolutist argument like the Daily Storm has no right to to Cloudflare services. This isn't this isn't a rights issue. And yes, there is a slipstorm aspect, but we can't be bound by by mm-hmm. that sort of thing. At the same time, where are we at if we are in a situation where a handful of individuals do decide what goes on the internet and what does not, and what are the checks on those people? And right. This is, but this is exactly where I actually respect Prince's absolutism. I don't think he's saying that society overall should be absolutist about free speech, that, that, that there should be, there is nothing that people aren't able to say. I think what I respect about his position is that given I am an infrastructure provider and by happenstance, I've managed to create this successful service that, that powers the internet. I don't think I should be the one personally making these decisions around what's okay and what's not. Now, at no point do I think he is therefore saying, and in fact, if you read a lot of his interviews, he's quite at pains to say, it's not that I'm saying free speech should be, uh, this is a guaranteed right and everybody should have it. What he's saying is exactly the point that you just made, you're in the process of making right then, which is it shouldn't be those individuals. It shouldn't be these people that are in charge of these massive companies that that make these decisions. And it shouldn't be Mark Zuckerberg tweaking the algorithm to figure out what people see and what they shouldn't see. There should be some other mechanism uh, that that has evolved, that is robust, that involves checks and balances, that makes these decisions around this, rather than just Prince waking up one day feeling grumpy and like that's it, you're gone. Right, and and there, I wrote about this earlier this year in the context there was that that leak to the Guardian about like the Facebook content guidelines, and mm. you know, and, and with, anytime that sort of stuff's leaked, the company that makes them is going to look terrible, right? Because they're going to have all these examples of stuff that they explicitly allow that is like horrific, but like, because you got to draw the line somewhere, right? And I wrote at the time, like, I, on one hand, I feel sympathetic for Facebook because there's no way this could be released and you don't look terrible. Like, it's just, it's just impossible. I'm like, on the other hand, it's their own fault. They, they, by trying to make everything into a closed garden, by bringing it all into their site, by, Pushing themselves in the position of gatekeeper, mm. they took on that responsibility whether they wanted or not. And and I th- I guess what's so scary about this cloud for thing is on one hand it's like it's easy to point to Facebook and said you made your bed go sleep in it right you want to have a closed garden guess what you're responsible for what's in the garden and even though that's a terrible job you took it on that's the price of of doing it. What's so scary about the Cloudflare thing is this is about the internet as a whole. This this idea that anyone can go set up a website and yeah, maybe you don't have a right to like a web host, but you can take your server and you can plug it in. And we had this debate previously. Like I've always been very the level of censorship I've been worried about is not the Facebook level because Facebook can like at the end of the day you can set up a website outside of Facebook and no one has a right to be heard on on Facebook. But on the ISP level, if an ISP can limit what you say and you can't even connect to the internet, I'm. I find that much more problematic, and that's the line I drew between like China and the Great Firewall versus Facebook is is mm. the, the level of censorship and where it it may or may not happen. And what makes the Cloudflare thing really concerning is it's much closer to the ISP yeah. level than it's elsewhere. Now, technically, it's not. They're just providing a service, and the Daily Storm can still set up a website somewhere else, right? But realistically, given the the ease with which you know d- distributed denial of service attacks can be launched. In reality, they've decided whether they're on the internet or not. 
Yeah, if you don't have that service, particularly if you're going to traffic in unpopular ideas of which it seems technical folks will react strongly to, and we've seen it in Silicon Valley over the past few months, like if you don't have a service like that, there is going to be someone who is technically minded and so inclined, they will break the law, which of which a distributed denial of service is, but they will break the law, they will probably get away with it, and they will take you off the internet and you will not have speech. So without them, it is like, like you said, much closer to that ISP level. Break what law, though? What if they're sitting in 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 some other country where it's not a law? I yeah. mean, th- this is the nature of the internet being this sort of mm. globalized globalized service that a lot of these a lot of these sort of traditional ways of thinking about things start start to break down. And w- what's so interesting uh, about this post in particular is that it it was almost a cry for regulation. Like mm. it, it was like I don't want this responsibility. Someone else should have the responsibility. Well. We've already decided as a species how we handle collective society-wide responsibilities, right? We give it to the government because that's the point right. of government is, is to do societal-based functions. And ideally, you know, that there is democratic oversight of that, you know, or mm-hmm. not to say that's always the case. But, I mean, that's that's the only potential outcome to to this is either it just happens or if there is going to be decisions made, like what – I mean, what what choice is there? Yeah, and uh, what's compounding this and uh, is so many of the the successful internet companies are based in the United States, and the United States has 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 this antithetical view to regulation, which as an Australian, I'm, and in our previous conversations, I will reach for that tool more frequently than someone from the States will. And you've often pushed back on me, but it's, I I feel that this is a good example where um, the extent to which the absence of it, the belief in it uh, from a government, uh, from government regulating this kind of thing, that absence has created a vacuum and that vacuum is being filled by these companies. And I'm not necessarily sure that the way that it's all unfolded is if you are going to go back and des- uh, and think about whether this is the right place to be, given the way it's unfolded, you would choose this place, like a handful of people who happen to be fantastic technically, fantastically technically minded and with business acumen and now making decisions around what the rest of the world can and cannot see. Ah, but that's the audacity. Listen to your, listen to you. If you I would know, go right? back and design it. You, you, you I know. I, I, I was trying to catch myself. If you would go I, back. I, no, I, too late. Yeah. I got to make my point. <laughs> if you yeah, would go right. back and design it, you yeah, would me. not have it. Like that's, mm-hmm. that is the great sort of trade-off is mm-hmm. we yeah. are where we are and we definitely ought to do our best to muddle forward and yep. to figure out where we go from here. But with a deep sort of humility and appreciation that complex systems evolve, they, they evolve from the input of millions of people and processes and contexts and, and circumstances and chance that occur to get us where we are and we we got to start from there all these fissures and problems are being revealed and i'm just talking about tech i'm not even getting into society <laughs> in all those and what's happening and i think what if there's anything to take away from from uber to take away from from all the stuff we talked about it's an appreciation that this stuff is unbelievably complex there are second and third and 25th order effects from everything mm. that is done, everything that we do. And 
you know, let's let's be, be careful. Let's be be careful there. Let's not. No, no one knows it all. I don't know it all. You don't know it all. Travis Klag doesn't know it all. Travis Klag's greatest critics don't know it all. Uh, Benchmark doesn't know it all. No one knows it all. And yeah. once we just a little bit of humility and how are we going to figure it, figure this out going forward, I think would be that's the best we can do. Yeah. I mean, it would be, it would be fantastic if there was a clear cut answer, but sometimes fostering those fostering that kind of uh, fostering what you just described is exactly, uh, is exactly what we need more of. And <laughs> if you think that the answer might perhaps lie in terms of, uh, uh, society handing responsibility to government for fixing or thinking about some of these problems. It is a comforting thought to think that the, uh, the elected leader of the United States government definitely has, uh, humility and appreciation of complexity in spades. Well, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a useful reminder that there are no easy, there are no easy solutions to say the least. Right. We've gone long, but um, it's good to be back. Yes, indeed. Uh, we, we are back. Uh, thank you for the eager inquiries as to where we are. I, 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 I feel and appreciate the love and amidst the annoyance. Uh, and our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent, as they do every week. And I'll speak to you next week. All right. Talk to you later. Sounds good. See you, mate.